Well, good afternoon. It's long time no see. I just noticed a cobweb under this light. <laughs> Been a while. But it's good that everybody's getting healthier that survived this, and hopefully things will be better from now on out. So, good to meet on God's Sabbath day. We've been meeting, but it's it's different. Different sitting at my desk just looking at the Bible, and uh, I don't glance up much because there's nothing there in front of me but a wall. So, nice to have real live people here. <clears throat> we do have the Feast of Dedication coming up starting this week. Across my mind, we might call it the Feast of Desecration. We know the temple will be built, and then it will be desecrated, but uh, you don't celebrate that. Uh, We do know that God is going to cause the temple to be built again, and that that's coming up pretty soon, and that there will be another dedication. So, Feast of Dedication, in one sense, I guess, is not truly commanded in Scripture, but then neither are the days of Purim. But if we're to live by every word of God, uh, he included Purim uh, in the whole book and showed how he delivered Judah, Israel back then, and how he will deliver us again, as in so many prophecies. So it is key and a very important book. And the Feast of Dedication is as well. Uh, In John 10 Verse 22, it says, And it was at Jerusalem, the Feast of the Dedication, and it was winter, which it is now. Uh, We had the 21st of December a few days ago, which officially started winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. So he had made it a point to be there at the Feast of Dedication. Uh, It doesn't mention in the Scriptures often or frequently that he was in the temple other than on the Sabbath day. But here it specifically mentions that he was there at the Feast of Dedication, which to me is an indication if he walked there, then I should walk as he walked. So I think we have a good connection to keep the Feast of Dedication, and particularly since we know it is in the future. Uh, There is another temple to dedicate. And we'll get it done. You know, they had a dedication ceremony when they finished the temple there in the book of Ezra. So the Jews have continued doing that. And some have said, well, that's just a Jewish thing. But God included it in the Word of God. And I think there's context around him walking there in the Feast of Dedication because he was being questioned about his flock and who would be in his fold above that a few verses, and then he goes on about it down below that. I won't take a lot of time on that at the moment, but, uh, you know, we are the spiritual temple of God, and each day is a dedication of the temple of God that we make before our God when we go to him in prayer and rededicate our lives to his will and his purposes and his word every day. So, uh, he is in the process of dedicating the spiritual temple 
through a process of sealing, putting his seal upon them, and dedicating them to life eternal. So there's a whole sermon or two involved in that, uh, to go to a lot of different scriptures. But your dedication and mine is very, very important to his plan and to his purpose. So keeping it as we do, I think, is important. We don't go to perhaps the extent that the Jews do by having plays and all kinds of stuff. But to come together uh, to sing some hymns to God, which is a form of worship, uh, and to break bread together, to fellowship as we have a little food, finger snacks, is a good thing. And if we need to do something more, uh, then perhaps we can. Huh? For you for a second. My my battery's running low, apparently. Yeah. yeah, maybe that's better, I hope. I guess it was giving some static with them being low. Anyway, a piece of dedication begins uh, this coming Tuesday evening at 7. 7 o'clock here, uh, Feast of Dedication, and goes on for eight days. And there's another indication right there uh, that God is in it and with it. You know, the Jews uh, have said that at the time of the Feast of Dedication, they were running out of oil for the lamps. And... God apparently miraculously caused that to last for eight days. And the, light, the lights, the lamps stayed on. Uh, like Elijah and the widow in the, in the meal barrel and the cruise of oil. It, it stayed through that entire drought time that Elijah was there with the widow. So uh, the fact that God was in it enough to cause the oil to keep burning indicates to me that his presence was there, and therefore that's an indication for our presence. So I think you can make a pretty good case with a few scriptures that God would have us observe this time. And interestingly enough, it falls on 925 is when it starts, uh, which is Tuesday this year, but the admonition in Haggai, or the promise in Haggai, uh, on the 9th and 24th, is it is a symbol of the time when God will again begin to bless his people. So you have 924 of Haggai, and then 925 begins a feast of dedication. And in that sense is not the drawing together of the remnant and them dedicating their purpose to God for the spiritual temple and dedicating themselves to build the physical temple, uh, is it not interesting that those two days come together? Now, how that's fulfilled and exactly when remains to be seen, but there certainly is a symbolism there in Haggai very clearly, and it is back-to-back with the Feast of Dedication. So that's something to bear in mind as well. Okay, enough on that. Let's get to the message for the day, or I guess the second message, if you will. We finished up Habakkuk last time, 
and showed the conflict in Habakkuk's mind, desiring things of God, knowing God was intending to bless, not knowing how long it would be before he would, and expressing some of his frustrations to God, and then God answering him, and him finally realizing he'd better uh, shut up and sit on his watch and wait for God to deliver on his promises. And then he acknowledged right at the end of the third chapter that God would take care of things, even though he so far had not seen the vine blossom or the fruit on the vine and and the olive uh, tree producing, God would take care of it. And I think I turned to Haggai there last week and, and reviewed what he said about the ninth and 24th. He says, you look and he asks the question there, has the olive tree produced? Has the pomegranate produced? Has the fig tree produced? I think he named four. Uh, well, no. And then he says, well, from this day and forward will I bless you. So uh, at some time we're going to become productive again. And at some time Haggai's, I mean uh, Habakkuk's prayer will be answered and God will begin to deliver on his promises. So even though we might have our doubts, our fears, our moments of questioning or whatever, uh, we need to go back maybe to Habakkuk and see the process that Habakkuk went through and finally got his thinking straight And God answered the things that Habakkuk needed answers to. So it's a very encouraging book in that way because we are as human as Habakkuk was and we need answers. Well, let's get into Zephaniah then uh, because it's the next chapter in these minor prophets which are put together like the chapters of a book and they proceed in sequence one event after another, until all are fulfilled. So after Habakkuk questioning some things and hanging on and getting some answers from God, then God gives an answer of some of the things that are coming next in the book of Zephaniah, and which are at our doorstep today. Remember going back through Hosea, Joel, and Amos, and the books leading up to this one, And we saw many places where you could read what was in the Scripture and you could go to the alternative news and read pretty much the same thing because it was speaking of current events, things that are going on today as we sit here today, uh, being fulfilled before our very eyes. So that is very encouraging. So Habakkuk said, okay, I'm going to sit here, and I'm going to wait until the vine and the fig and all these do produce, and then I know God's going to give me deer legs and rejuvenate me and restore me, which are things we look at from the book of Joel and other places, Isaiah 35, about how he is going to cause the lame to walk and the deaf to hear and the blind to see and so on. So Habakkuk was looking at those very same things and used the same type of language to describe the things that God has for us in the very near future. So he thought, maybe I ought to just die and miss all this, 
And yet he said, no, I think I'll wait and rejoice in the eternal. And that's the choice we should make as well. Uh, We don't need to curl up into a fetal position and give up the ghost. We need to move forward with eagerness and joy and zeal, knowing God has work to do. He has work for us to do, and he wants us to live to do it. And he's going to renew us so that we can do it. So it's not time at all to give up. It's time to press forward toward the mark of the high calling of Jesus Christ, as Paul said. So here in Zephaniah, this book was written uh, during Josiah's reign, uh, beginning in the twelfth year of that. Jeremiah began his message in the thirteenth year of, of, uh, of Josiah. So the messages are very similar. God was giving Zephaniah and Jeremiah much of the same information, as he did all the prophets when their time was there. Zephaniah, the name means uh, I can't read my own writing here. I wish I could read. I wrote this 26 years ago about. The Lord is hid was the word I couldn't get was hid. The Lord is hid. And today, is he not hid from the world? Very, very few understand who God is. And Isaiah 45 says that the treasures of God, when they are unearthed, are going to caused the whole world from the east to the west to know that God is God. So, he is hid right now. But he's not going to stay hid much longer. (laughs) And when we get into the book here, we're going to see that right off the bat. The word of the Eternal which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, and the son of Amariah, uh, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. We established this pretty well when this was. And he, God gets right to it here in this message from Zephaniah. I will utterly consume all things from off the land, says the Eternal. Now you can go to many of the prophecies in the book of Revelation, in the New Testament, and other places... Matthew 24, Luke 21, and see that God is going to intervene and do some wondrous things and some terrible things. Isaiah 24, for instance, talks about this time that is coming in the day of the Lord and how he will consume mankind and few men left, Isaiah 24 says. Not very many will survive out of eight and a half billion. And we are beginning to see that he is allowing Satan and his minions to start this process. Uh, There was an article on Steve Quayle's site three, four days ago that really caught my eye. And the title had something to do with what is America's greatest idol. Quite an interesting article. It was talking all about medical science doctors, 
pharmacists, and so on. And we know from Revelation 18 that he says, by means of pharmakeia, the whole world will be deceived. So it's something that's pervasive throughout the whole world. And he said, God, our, America's number one idol is the medical profession. I would argue a little bit about that. Not a whole lot, but a little bit. America's greatest idol is self. And the next two greatest idols, I think, in America are attendant to that, are connected to that. The thing we put above God is the first commandment, ourselves. And secondly, and below that, is our welfare, our health, is our number one idol. I'm my idol, and my health is my next idol. So preservation of self is in its sense idolatry. And then you have the other side, which is materialism. And that has to do with self. I want to be healthy and wealthy. Some might say, and wise, but not too many. Most stop right there. I want to be healthy and wealthy, the big me. So that is a pyramid of idolatry that our country worships today. What's the biggest building in nearly all American towns? The hospital. What's the busiest parking lot in nearly every town in America? The hospital parking lot. Why did Asa die? Because he sought to the physicians instead of to God when he was diseased in his feet. Who is our healer? God. He says that over and over. I am your healer. What does he say to do when we get sick? Go to him. What do we do when we get sick? We go to the doctor as a nation. That's what we do. Now, is that putting the doctors ahead of our healer? That's idolatry is what it is. Idolatry is the greatest sin. You know, there's a lot of things we kind of overlook. I've heard it said all my life, and I've heard it preached from this pulpit, and I may have preached it myself at some time, that, well, the, the law in the Old Testament was there, and you could think it all day long, as long as you didn't do it, it wasn't sin. But in the New Testament, now it's sin to even think it, and to do it is an even worse sin. That's wrong. Did you ever read the Tenth Commandment? Thou shalt not covet this, 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 that, and that. That's all in the mind. That's all about the mind. It has nothing to do with any physical obedience to any law. It's the law of the mind. Control what goes through here. So the Ten Commandments weren't just all about physical adherence. You know, you could hate somebody as long as you didn't kill them. No. You can't covet or lust. 
what happened when Moses went up the mountain. They coveted it and lusted and committed idolatry. What does Colossians say? Covetousness is idolatry. So if you covet in the mind in the Old Testament, you were committing idolatry. So it was a mental thing in the Old Testament, not just physical compliance. How did I get from here to there? I will utterly consume all things from off the land, says the Eternal. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. <coughs> Read the book of Revelation. What does it say about sea creatures dying, trees and grass dying, and so on when those plagues are turned loose? He's saying the same thing here. I will cut off man from off the land, says the Eternal. Isaiah tells you how far that will go in chapter 24. Few men left. Daniel, I think, puts a number on it, a hundred million. That's, it says that's how many Christ will set himself to judge when he returns. And that doesn't mean just immediately separating sheep from goats. The sheep will have already pretty well been resurrected in the first resurrection when he comes to make that judgment. What he means is, he will give them a period of time to live like he has us and judge their lives based on how they live in the millennium and in the great white throne judgment. So, he's going to consume most of mankind off the earth. Now, Satan knows this. He's very familiar with all these scriptures, you know. And he goes to God's throne to accuse you and me probably every day, uh, and he knows that God intends to destroy mankind pretty much from off the face of the earth, just as he did in Noah's day, only not quite as much this time. And he's all for it. He wants to see man destroyed. And what he thinks he can do is deceive mankind and turn them against God, so that when they do die, they'll be lost. Now, that was kind of Jonah's attitude about Nineveh. Maybe they'll be destroyed. I'm not going to pre preach repentance. They might do it. I want to see them dead. And that's Satan's attitude toward you and me and all mankind. He wants us dead, and especially us. When God casts him down and says, you're not going to come up here anymore and accuse my people, he's going to immediately come down here and attack us. <coughs> we flee to Zion. Because we're the ones he wants dead the most. And the rest of mankind he also wants dead. And you know what? It's going to be a little different than the deal with Job. He said, with Job... Do anything you want with him, just don't kill him. This time he's going to take hands off and say, go for it. Kill him. Because it will fit God's purposes. Do you realize that Bill Gates and Anthony Fauci and Donald Trump and Joe Biden, what's left of him, 
and these other leaders of the world are God's servants? They are. They're killing us. God wants us, as a nation, as a world, to die for his purposes. Now, what did he call Nebuchadnezzar? My servant. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was an evil king. But he did some things that God wanted done, and that made him God's servant, evil as he was. So these men are evil to the core. Don't get me wrong. With abortion and with vaccines that they're concocting for the purpose of killing us, they're evil. But God is going to turn the evil of man and the evil of Satan to good because man will not listen to God. When they see history on earth shortly, and the treasures of God, all the different kinds of them, not just gold and silver, but it's the history. It may be the mummies. It may be the temple vessels, things that show that the God of the Old Testament is the God still today. Do you think people are going to believe him or turn and worship him? No, he's going to show by those things that he is God. Ezekiel says it over and over and over again. And they shall know that I am the eternal. Does that evoke repentance? No, not at all. They're just going to know that he's God. But they will not follow him. And then God is going, once he starts this process, he's going to unleash after the Gentiles have 42 months of the times of the Gentiles, when they just are sitting pretty and think they're ruling the world and everything's going to be according to the way they want it. God is going to unleash the two witnesses on them and tell them who God is and show them by those who are living in Zion in peace and prosperity, that they could have that. And when they don't believe and won't follow, then they'll unleash plagues on them, and they won't believe that. And then they'll kill them and rejoice and have a party and send each other presents, thinking, we won! And Satan is in charge and will worship him forever and ever. They are truly stubborn, ungodly, and intend to stay that way. And you can move heaven and earth and not change that. The only thing that can change that is them dying some pretty horrible deaths and being resurrected and Satan being bound so that he can't influence them. And then... They'll be ready to listen, most of them. God's going to give them all an opportunity to repent and live according to his way and be part of his kingdom. I don't care how bad they've been. That's why I mentioned Gates and Fauci and some of these that we're looking at today, Soros. The list is pretty long. 
They'll have their chance at salvation. But right now, they're the tools of the devil himself. But then Satan is also a tool of God to do what God wants done, not for bad, but for the good of man. Now, Satan is doing it because he wants man gone and not to be part of the kingdom. He did it to Job out of glee and joy, thinking, I can destroy this man. But God had a different plan in mind. So he used Satan as a tool, and through that tool, he managed to turn Job around. (coughs) So he's going to use Satan again. And he's going to use Satan's human uh, followers this time to destroy most of mankind (coughs) in order to ultimately convert mankind. Now, in Noah's case, he did it a little bit differently. There, he sent the waters and just summarily himself did it all. And Satan probably thought then he'd won. I got all but eight here. (coughs) I caused them to be so violent and so sinful that God just wiped them out. You know, he must have thought he'd won. (coughs) I did my job so well that God wiped them out. Now this time, God's going to play it a little differently. He's going to say, go wipe them out. Instead of him doing it, you go do it. I give you permission. Go do it. Now, when you get all done, let's see who wins. Because God will bind Satan, and he'll bring these people up out of the grave in better times and lead them to repentance and into his kingdom. He's going to win in the end, always. And Satan, this time, is going to have to say, I gave it my best shot, and I still lost. And then his attitude, if he can get any worse, will. (coughs) So never forget that even though Satan is doing the work, and Soros and Gates and some of these others are helping, God is behind it. So he says here, I will consume. You know, a lot of people blamed the falling apart of the church on the devil. No. Read the book of Lamentations. God said over and over and over in there, I did it. I did it. I did it. So many times it's hard to count in that short book. God did it. But he allowed Satan and man to perpetrate it. You bet he did. False prophets, false ministers. But here, he says, I, 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 verses 2, 3, 4, I will also stretch out my hand upon Judah, not just the world, and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place. So then he starts to enumerate the ones he chose through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they have turned to idolatry and followed Baal, our nation does today. 
What does our nation worship? We already covered that. Self, health, and wealth. What has been the key all along? That's what man has always wanted. That's what Satan has always wanted. He has wanted to be number one and have all the health and wealth of the universe. Those have been his goals. So, he's given us. Himself is God through us worshiping ourselves and then given us medical science and dollar bills in order to keep us away from God. God, Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, you can't worship both. You can only have one master. You can't worship two. Satan and the world or God. Those are your choices. I'm going to cut it off. In the name of the Kimmerims with the priests. The uh, Kimmerims were idolatrous priests. They're going to be cut off. The false preachers. And them that worship the host of heaven... Upon the housetops, and them that worship and that swear by the Lord, and that swear by Malcolm. Malcolm was the national god of the Ammonites. So we've taken on these false gods. This is the 25th of December, as I recall. Worshiping Satan. Not Christ's birthday. Doesn't have anything to do with Christ. They stuck his name on pagan worship and pagan practice. And it's a satanic day. It's going away. It's one of the things that's leaving. They worship the host of heaven on the housetop. What's the host of heaven? Satan and his demons. Who comes and lands on your housetop? Santa Claus. They worship false doctrine, false gods on the housetops. Comes on your housetop and climbs down your chimney. Sure, right. And they swear by the god of the Ammonites or the demon Moroni. And them that are turned back from the eternal and those that have not sought the eternal nor inquired for him. So, he's not only going to kill those who have had false gods, but even those that are turned back from God. We were once, we thought, a Christian nation, even though we didn't really follow much Christianity, but turned back from even the idea of worshiping God. And those that have not even sought him, there's a lot of those in our country today, nor inquired for him. How many people do you meet in the grocery store or on the subway or on the train or the bus or the airplane or wherever? I'm just anywhere in our society. How many people are saying, where's God? What's God doing? How can I find God? Can you tell me where God is? I can't remember being asked that for a mighty long time. Can you? Anywhere in public? No. He says, hold your peace at the presence of the Lord God. He is going to do some things to get attention. Just shut up and watch. Hold your peace. You with all your excuses and all your Mother Gaia worshiping 
and all you Lucifer worshipers, and all you Methodists, Baptists, Mormons, and Catholics, just shut up, and I'm going to show you some things. Okay? For the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He, had bid, he has bid his guests. Doesn't he tell the nations in Isaiah 7 and 8 to gather and associate themselves? And come on, let's get it on. Let's have a fight here. You going to fight me? Come on, let's do it. Get it on. And many, many other places he offers that challenge. Well, here he's doing it as well. Day of the Lord, you go to the book of Joel, you go to Revelation, there's so many places you can go that discuss the day of the Lord when God begins to take his hand and begin to loosen Satan's hold on the world. Now, he began that process with the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's when he began it. Well, I say in that sense, he began it a long time before that when they were planning to create the earth and decided he would have to come and do it. So you can go all the way back with any of this, but on a physical plane here on the earth, when he died and was resurrected, that started the taking away of sovereignty of the earth from Satan. Because Satan had come to him shortly before, and Christ had defeated him in that battle. So he qualified then to take over the rulership of the world. Something that God had given Satan. But Christ was going to come and in righteousness take that away from him so that he can't rule the world anymore. And the day of the Lord and all of this thing that God is talking about right here is when all of this begins in earnest. He's bid his guests. He's invited the whole world. Okay, you don't want to worship me. You don't know who I am. You haven't asked about me. I'm going to show you who I am, and we're going to settle this. And it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice. He's just said, I am going to consume people and animals and fowls, right? It's his sacrifice. That I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with strange apparel. Everybody on earth is going to be subject to this destruction that God is going to cause to bring through Satan and man and even himself will do part of it. Christ is coming back with his vesture dipped in blood, and he will do the final subjugation himself, personally. He'll use Satan and man in the meantime. But he's behind it all and is granting permission since he is taking over the world, having qualified. So this destruction and trouble and this decree that he's making here is against anyone with strange clothing. Now what is that? Righteousness is equated to white clothing, garments unspotted by Satan and the world. 
So pure white is what God is looking for. Now, he tells us in the New Testament to keep ourselves unspotted from the world, to be righteous, not to sin, not to dirty our spiritual garments. Now, this says strange clothes. That's what it's talking about. The only ones he is going to protect, and he says it in chapter 2, we'll get to it in a minute, are those who will walk humbly before him. So the clothing of righteousness is what is desired. Now, didn't he make it very clear at the wedding supper that anyone who came without the clothing of righteousness would be kicked out? So he's saying the same thing right here. If you got on some strange apparel that is apart from my righteousness and my holiness, you're in trouble. In the same day, also will I punish all those that leap on the threshold, which fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. Now, what I mentioned before, I hadn't thought of how it fits in here about the pyramid of idolatry between self and then maintaining the self through health and wealth. He talks about here. Because when he starts killing all these people, that destroys their wealth. You can't take it with you. It destroys their health. They won't be alive anymore. And it destroys them. So every part of them that was idolatrous goes away. He will stamp out idolatry. Where anyone worships anything but the true God of creation. Everything else ultimately will be stamped out. It will start with the day of the Lord and it will continue through the great white throne judgment until everybody is either part of the kingdom of God or in the lake of fire. He's going to complete the job. So, he's talking about the death of anyone who does not have unholy garments. Then he's going to address the wealth part. Punish all those that leap on the threshold which fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. And you'll see as we go along here that he's talking about those who are striving for wealth and they're just so eager to cross the threshold into Wall Street on Monday morning. Got to get back to making money. Got to get back to work. Got to get back to business. Got to get back to material stuff so I can buy the boat and the car and the house and the island and whatever else, the jet air, whatever else they want. I've got to get this done. So they do it with lying, deceit, and violence. And if you cross some of those people who are at the top of this pyramid, they'll kill you and think nothing of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Eternal, that there should be the noise of a cry from the fish gate and a howling from the second and a great crashing from the hills. Now, we use the term today, stock market crash. Well, he's talking about that right here. He uses the same word. <clears throat> Howl, you inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down, all they that bear silver are cut off. Maktesh was a market area of Jerusalem historically. 
So he's talking about our marketplaces. And it, the whole system is going to crash. And their gold and their silver, which are represented by dollars or cryptocurrency or whatever today, uh, same thing, it's, it's wealth. And they use silver and gold then, and it could even include that, uh, because if there's no food and you have disease, famine and pestilence, dollars, cryptocurrency, silver, gold, none of them are going to do you any good. But he's going to take away that idol of materialism. Those that bear silver, the, the bankers, the Wall Street brokers, those people are going to be cut off. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish the men that are settled on their lees that say of their heart, The Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. Settled on your lees was a boating term, meant you would be sitting with your oars still. You're resting on your oars. You're not busy paddling, going somewhere. In other words, these are people who have become wealthy. They have become independently wealthy. They can sit back at the pool and sip their cocktails and they have nothing to worry about because they've got so much money they don't know how to spend it. And all Americans are to some degree that way when you compare them with a lot of the rest of the world. We, you and I, who have some physical things, are looked upon that way by people who live in a cardboard box in Mexico, in South Africa, in places in, in Asia, and so on. I've seen those places. I've driven through them. You live the life of a king by comparison. Living in a cardboard box, carrying their water on their back or their head for two, three, four miles to have a drink of water and to cook. So it's not talking about just the ones at the top of our society, but even us who live in our, well, you and I don't as much, live in our McMansions. But to the rest of the world, to a lot of the world, we fit this description as well. And to us, the ones at the top of our society fit this description more. But anyone who is lackadaisical, thinks he has it made, and a lot of Americans feel that way. I have my house and my TV and my telephone. Hey, I'm good. What more do you need? I wonder if they ever find God on that telephone or on that TV. How much is he on it? Anybody who takes it for granted, <clears throat> anybody who is not seeking God and worshiping God fits this category. What did our founding fathers say? They were into a religion called deism, and admitted it. That was their religion, was deism. It means to them, or meant to them, and it means to a lot of people today, even as this prophecy is written for today, that believe that there was a creator, whatever form he might have taken, but he's really not that concerned for us today. 
He's not going to do this. He's not going to do that. Our leaders will take care of us. Or uh, my company will give me a bonus. Or what do we need a God for? He's not a part of their lives then. God won't do this. God won't do that. My, my life is my job, my hobby, my family, my physical possessions. That's my life. That's all. People don't look beyond that much in our nation anymore. They get a little perturbed when the government starts trying to kill them off, some of them, and most of them just go on as if nothing's happening because I have what I need. Why do I need God? I got food, I got drink, I got transportation, I have sex and money. What more do I need? That's the American approach. Verse 13, Therefore, because of this attitude, their good shall become booty, that is, become possessed by someone else, and their houses a desolation. They shall also build houses, but not inhabit them. Isaiah 5 ties in directly with that how they'll build all these houses and they'll be taken away. The God has done everything for his vineyard he could do. He gave us this country. He gave us all the wealth we could desire as Ephraim. And that's what he says in Isaiah 5. I gave you all this. What's your complaint? Now I'm going to take all this away from you because you forgot me. That's where we are today. All these fancy houses. Man, they're building them so fast around St. George you can't keep up with it. Every time you go to town, you see a different subdivision sprouting up. Oh, they're building them, but they're going to be taken away. They're not going to live in them. Maybe for a short while, but not long. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink the wine thereof. Might have a great big drought in California and not a vine survive. They'll try to raise vineyards, but... No, it won't get through to the wine place. It's all coming down. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastes greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. This is a pretty strong decree, isn't it? It's near. Remember the language there in Ezekiel 7 and 8 after he says a third will die of this, this, and this? And he says, after the 430 is up, it hastes, it is near, it is near, it is come, it is come, it is come, about a dozen times, saying, it won't be the echoing again of the hills, it's coming. And that was, I think, that period of time ended in uh, fall of 2017, and we began coming apart at the seams in late 2019 and early 2020. This is upon us. Didn't he tell Habakkuk, don't worry, if it tarries, it won't tarry, it hastes, it's coming, coming soon. Well, we are today in it, and the day of the Lord is going to come as a result of the things that are already starting to happen that he's allowed Satan to unleash. They haven't taken the houses away yet, but they're getting close. We have a communist government firmly in control 
in the Washington, D.C. And they intend to take it all away. You will own nothing and you will be happy with it, is something that they have already said. They intend to take it all away. And if you won't get a vaccination, they intend to kill you. And if you do get a vaccination, they did intend to kill you, and it will happen. Because that is their intent. And God has allowed it to happen. So this thing has already begun. It's just going to get worse and worse. And the mighty man will cry bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Even Joe Biden one day remembered to say, we have a winter of darkness coming. Do they know what they're bringing down? You bet they do. Darkness. A day of the trumpet. An alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. So it's coming against the cities with all the magnificent tall buildings. Everything. And I will bring distress upon men that they shall walk like blind men. Because they have sinned against the eternal. There's your bottom line. Sin against God is bringing all this on. And their blood shall be poured out as dust, and their flesh as the dung. Bleed out on the street, and lay there and rot like manure. No one to bury them. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. God is a jealous God. He intended man to worship him. In the very first two men, man and woman, who existed, almost immediately turned and worshipped the devil and themselves. <coughs> For he shall make an even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. A few held back, but essentially... Worldwide destruction is what he's describing. Now, gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O nation, not desired. He says, none of you really are desirable, but those of you who will. Pay attention to what I'm saying here. Gather yourselves together before the decree bring forth. Before the day passes the chaff, before the fierce anger of the eternal come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. So this destruction is not just the financial crash that's talked about here, but the decree of destruction that started in verse 2 and continues all the way through. The destruction of mankind. He says before... All this comes down, and we see it now already beginning to come down. So the time is of the essence. What are you to do? <clears throat> Seek you the eternal, all you meek of the earth, which have worked his judgment. He's speaking to his church here. Nobody else has worked the judgment of God. Seek righteousness. 
There's only a small group who have done that. Seek meekness. Everybody's full of their vanity and their ego, whether it's in business or sports or sex or cars or whatever subject you want to name. Everybody thinks he's an expert in whatever it is that he thinks he's so good at. And vanity and ego rules. Seek meekness. It may be you shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. So before all this comes down, God is making a plea to those who have been trying to serve him, who have tried to be righteous, who have worked his judgment. He's pleading with them, come to me. Seek me. In Micah 4, it says, leave the city in Babylon and go dwell in the desert. There you'll be delivered. Not in the city. Not going to happen there. And he gives us many different warnings through the Scriptures. Well, this is another one of them. What he's saying here is not much different than what he said in Habakkuk. Chapter 1, verse 4. Behold his soul which is lifted up, not meek, but vain, proud, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. His trust and his faith in God, who is the only deliverer. So we get this thrown in, in these little books, frequently, of what we are to do. And then he goes on to talk about different cities and so on, that just represent our modern cities There'll be no inhabitant, uh, down end of verse 5. Seacoast shall be dwellings and cottages for shepherds and folds for flocks. What are on our seacoast right now? Great big cities, huge populations on both coasts. No, that'll all be wiped out and it'll just be for a few shepherds. This is all that'll be there. And the coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed thereupon, and the houses of Ashkelon shall they lie down in the evening. So the remnant, those who survive, who are going to survive? The ones who seek God and seek meekness and righteousness. That's who. For the eternal their God shall visit them and turn away their captivity. I have heard the reproach of Moab and the revilings of the children of Ammon, whereby they have reproached my people and magnified themselves against their border. You see another reason I think the Mormons are involved here? God's people are being brought to the original promised land, and it is the Ammonites and Moabites and the Edomites who surround them and reproach them. Isaiah 16 tells those people, take care of my people. Do they obey God? No. They will become a reproach to us. Therefore, as I live, says the Eternal, swears by himself. There's no greater one to swear by than that. The God of Israel, surely Moab shall be as Sodom and the children of Ammon as Gomorrah. Even the breeding of nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall spoil them and the remnant of my people shall possess them. Who is that? The remnant he's going to start talking about in the next book in this series. Those who come to build his temple right in the middle of Mormonism. That's who. 
This shall they have for their pride, because they have reproached and magnified themselves against the people of the Lord of hosts. That's the church. That's the remnant of the church that's brought together. And they are going to come against us, and God will destroy them. And that isn't all. You Ethiopians also, you shall be slain by my sword. Don't know who that's speaking of in the end time, but ancient enemies anyway. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and will make Nineveh a desolation and dry like a wilderness. That's what Noah, Jonah was looking for. He wanted them not to repent so God would destroy them and they wouldn't punish Israel. Well, they're going to punish Israel. The rest of the prophecies say that. And then they are going to get what they deserve for what they've done. Just like Satan and all these people who are working for him today are going to do what they do and then they're going to be punished for what they've done. They're going to go in their bunkers and think, we got her made, baby. Well, this is all over. We'll come out. We'll rule the world. No, God says, you go to the depths of the sea. Some of them have submarines. You go to the tops of the mountains. You're not going to escape me. Though you go into the heavens. Some of them may try to go to the moon or Mars till this is over. No, you're not going to get away from God. He knows who you are. Okay, Nineveh desolation. Uh, verse 14, flocks shall lie down in the midst of her, all the beasts of the nations and the, the birds. There's not going to be anything left, in other words. Place for birds and beasts. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly, that said in her heart, I am and there is none beside me. Now that's what America has said up to this point as the leader of Babylon will be supplanted by another who will say, No, you weren't it. We destroyed you. Now we are the ones. How has she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down in? Everyone that passes by her shall hiss and wag his hand, shake his finger at him. <coughs> because they too will be brought down in the day of the Lord. Well, let's... Uh, Let's get through the rest of this. It isn't real long, and I'll try to kind of hasten. Woe to her that is filthy and polluted to the oppressing city. She obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. She trusted not in the eternal. She drew not near to her God. Now, I think he turns here in chapter 3 to quit talking about Nineveh, which has just been destroyed and become a place for birds to roost. Here is the one who didn't fear God. And who does God hold most responsible for that? Israel. Us. We're the ones that obeyed not the voice of God and would not receive correction, and that for Nineveh came and took us into captivity. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They gnaw not the bones till the morrow. Aren't our judges, aren't our politicians pretty well depicted right here? Chewing on us, destroying us. Her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. 
Look at the religious leaders. They're nothing today. They're not crying out for us to turn to God. They're crying out to worship Baal and vaccines. They have done violence to the law. Both the law of God and the law of man has been thrown away. We don't live by the rule of law anymore. The Constitution means nothing to the judges and the politicians. It does to a few patriots, but not to those people. They're in charge. The just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. Every morning does he bring his judgment to light. He fails not, but the unjust know no shame. Who does he bring his light and his morning strength to? Just the remnant of his church. That's all. The rest of them, no, no shame. They're not ashamed of their sins. They're not ashamed of their greed. They're not ashamed of their violence. They do it and think they got away with it. I have cut off the nations. Their towers are desolate. I made their streets waste that none passes by. Their cities are destroyed so that there is no man, that there is none inhabitant. <coughs> this is pretty serious devastation, don't you think? New York empty, Chicago empty. I said, surely you will fear me. If I do this, surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction, so their dwelling should not be cut off. Howsoever, I punished them, but they rose early and corrupted all their doings. So God's sending a message. He's going to send a message with the two witnesses, and they're not going to listen. They're not going to pay any attention. He says, I'd have thought when I uncovered the treasures and showed you that I'm God... You'd have paid attention. But no. Therefore wait ye upon me, says the Eternal, until the day that I rise up to the prey, for my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them my indignation. There's still a very short time left when he's speaking this that they could yet turn. But it's getting really, really late in the day, if you will. For all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Worldwide conflagration before it's all done. For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve Him with one consent. So he's going, to introduce, he's going to have the day of the Lord, devastate the earth, Christ will return, and he will give us a pure language. Not the gobbledygook Chinese and English and nation, uh, languages we have today. A pure language. That people might call on his name. They'll have the name right, they'll have the laws right, they'll have everything right. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my suppliants, even the daughter of my dispersed, shall bring my offering. They're going to start responding to God at that time. In that day shall you not be ashamed for all your doings, wherein you have transgressed against me. For then I will take away out of the midst of you them that rejoice in your pride, 
and you shall no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. So what is he doing in this process of destroying mankind from off the face of the earth? He's removing vanity and pride, ego and self. I will also leave in the midst of you an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Eternal. He's going to save out just a few. says it again right here. And the rest of this chapter is about that, about his remnant that he's going to gather out of all this before all this hits in such a way that there's no way out. He says, before this gets so bad, gather yourselves and be humble and meek and maybe I'll protect you. Here he says, I'll save out for myself a people who will trust me and be humble. The remnant of Israel, his true spiritual Israelites, the remnant of them, what's left of the 10% of the church, shall not do iniquity nor speak lies. So they don't have to be ashamed. Neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Isaiah 11, in a mini-millennium, even before Christ returns and completes the thing. He's even coming to dwell with them, he says in Zechariah. Just like he's coming to dwell with the people of the earth. So he's doing it in a microcosm ahead of time as an example and a light on the hill to the world. So he says, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. He is going to turn and forgive us and show mercy and grace and smile on us in spite of ourselves and judge us the apple of his eye. He will count us as worthy even though we were not fully worthy. The Lord has taken away your judgments. We had some against us, right? He has cast out your enemy. He's going to get rid of our enemies, both locally and the Assyrian when he comes after us. Is in the midst of you. You shall not see evil anymore. Once the church flees to Zion, no more evil will come to them. And even before then, as we build the temple... He says he'll be a wall of fire around and a covert from the, over the top. So once he gathers his people and he comes to dwell with them as an example to the world, no more trouble to them. Just the flight to safety. And he says if you don't go in your house and you don't do something stupid, but you flee, when you see the armies gathering, everything will be fine. In in that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear you not, and to Zion let not your hands be slack. There's work to do. We're going to read about it in the next book. There's work to do. The eternal your God in the midst of you is mighty. Not by might, not by strength, but by my spirit, says the eternal, Zechariah 4. He will save. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over you with singing. 
We sing to God. He's going to sing to us. I love to hear good singing. You know what? When Christ starts singing to us, I never thought of that before. I never picked that up. Man, that's going to be nice to hear. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly who are of you, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. We've been bearing a burden. We've been scattered and tossed and turned and confused and spit out. It's been a burden. It's going to be fixed. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict you, and I will save her that halts and gather her that was driven out. The lame will walk, same as the other scriptures. And I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. God's true people are going to be being persecuted and already are. I had a message from a guy in India just recently. He's been writing me fairly often. But he has a little congregation there. They keep the holy days. They keep the Sabbath. And he spoke out about Christmas. And he's getting all kinds of persecution over speaking against Christmas. And he said, please pray for us. We're being persecuted over Christmas. All right? There's a land you hadn't heard of. There's a story you hadn't heard of. Here it is, right here. In every land where they have been put to shame. At that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you. And he's going to talk about that in Haggai. For I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, says the Eternal. So we've been spit out, we've been spewed. We have been cursed, and we have been punished. And he loves every son whom he punishes. And he chastens every son whom he loves. So he's chastened us. And he's brought us out. And now he wants us to be humble and gather ourselves before him before all hell breaks loose. We're seeing some hell already. And it's bad. And we here have even suffered the loss of one recently. But it's going to turn around. It is going to turn completely around. And God is going to begin to bless. And we'll have the curse and the chastening and the trouble taken away. That story continues in this book that we're reading. These twelve books. Chapter by chapter of what's happening right now. And is about to happen very shortly. We'll get to that, God willing, next week. 